0: All right, good to be back with all of you. Let's see if we can all muster the strength, or the energy, I should say, and the attention to uh, finish out our afternoon uh, service with with hopefully close to our full attention. But we're going to turn again to our confession today, and I invite you, if you want to read with me, if you turn to the very back of your hymnal on page 673 is where we're picking up, 673. So this will be part three and the final part of us opening up chapter four on creation. Uh, the first part, we looked at creation of all things generally. And then last time we looked at particularly man as he's created in the image of God. And now this afternoon we want to focus on finishing out chapter uh, paragraph two and paragraph three on the state of man. So let's read paragraph two and three together of chapter four. The very top of 673. Okay, chapter 4, paragraph 2 and 3. After God had made all other creatures, he made man, male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Besides the law written in their heart, Uh, Excuse me. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of of good and evil. Which, whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray and then we'll we'll uh, dive in together. Let's pray. Father, we unite our hearts again. Uh, This afternoon of this Lord's Day, asking for you to bless us. Father, thank you for the blessings of belonging to your church, of the means of grace, of fellowship, our friendships together. We thank you that you have made us like a band of brothers, and you have caused us to stand side by side in the defense of the gospel. And we thank you for the sweet bonds of love that we have for one another We pray that this afternoon we would be strengthened in our usefulness, pray that we would understand your word more deeply, that we would be ready in season and out of season to give a reason and a defense for the hope that lies within us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be more useful in your service. Give us boldness, give us courage. We pray that we would accurately handle your words so that we would be a good witness to the unbelievers in our lives. Bless us and instruct us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last time in the confession, we um, considered the first half of paragraph two. Paragraph two focuses on uh, the creation of man, and we looked at last time the unique place that man holds in creation why and how man is separate and distinct from the beasts, Um, we looked at what it means for man to have a reasonable and immortal soul, and also we introduced something of what it means for man to be the image of God. And today we want to pick up in the middle of paragraph two and finish paragraph three as well, which... um, focuses not so much on the constitution of man, what man is, but rather the rest of paragraph 2 and paragraph 3 focus on the state of man with our original parents. So the state that Adam and Eve were created in. Their condition and their relationship to God and to righteousness. Um, Thomas Boston wrote a very important work called Human Nature and Its Fourfold State. How many of us have heard of that book? Some of us. Okay, so Thomas Boston, Human Nature in its fourfold state. And I'm sure you can find summaries of that book online if you if you look that up. Um, but essentially, as its name suggests, that book describes human nature and its condition as it travels through four different states. And those states are the state of innocency, Adam and Eve before the fall. State, state two is the state of sin, all people after the fall. State three is the state of grace after God makes a sinner into a Christian. And then the fourth state of human nature is the state it will be in glory when Christ perfects us um, in heaven. And um, our confession, as we move through it, it will touch at the appropriate points, each of those four states. And it's very appropriate that at the chapter on creation, it touches on the state of man in his state of innocency. That is, what was the state of human nature before we fell into sin? So, we consider last time that man was not made neutral, but rather the confession explicitly says he was made upright in true righteousness and holiness. And we pick up today uh, with these words... As, um, as paragraph 3 begins, it says, Besides the law written in their hearts. Now, it says it like that because it's already mentioned, this law written on man's heart, right in the middle of paragraph 2. Um, and when it says, Besides the law written on their hearts, you can tell that it's going to go on to describe a different kind of law, isn't it? Right? This is one kind of law written on their hearts. And... In addition to that, they had another kind. We'll look at that towards the end here. Um, But they're assuming here that Adam and Eve were created with what we call natural law, or the law of nature. How many of us have heard either of those two terms? Okay, some of us. So the natural law, or the law of nature, Adam and Eve had that written upon their heart. In other words, Adam and Eve were created upright, in true righteousness and holiness, and they were created in communion with God, and they possessed from God revelation concerning how they could and should glorify God and live before God. Right? So, for instance, you can read Genesis 1 and 2, and nowhere are you going to find God coming to Adam and saying, Now, Adam, here's my law. Be faithful to your wife. You shouldn't lie. Um... You shouldn't steal, right? Why doesn't God have to tell Adam that? Because Adam already had the law of nature impressed upon his heart by way of his being created in the image of God. Um, And Paul tells us, not only was that true of Adam and Eve in a state of innocence, but Paul tells us that this remains true of every single image bearer, even fallen humanity. Um, for instance, Romans chapter 2. You can turn to Romans chapter 2. This is the beginning. We'll be looking at verse beginning at verse 14. But Romans chapter 2 is Paul's lengthy argument that's going to crescendo in chapter 3 verse 9 where he comes to the conclusion that all, everybody, both Jew and Gentile, are all under sin. That's one of the big... High points in the beginning of Romans is chapter 3, verse 9. But someone might ask the question, well, we know the Jews had the law of God, and so I understand why they're guilty under sin, because they've transgressed the law. But you could imagine someone asking the question, what about those who don't have the law? Right? I mean, Paul even says in chapter 5 that where there is no law, there is no transgression. So how are Gentiles accounted as sinful before God, even though they don't have the law? That's what Paul deals with in chapter 2 beginning in verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, and by that he means the written law, when they by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, the Scriptures, they are a law unto themselves, verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience either... Bearing witness, or bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus according to my gospel. So, Paul is saying that even Gentiles who do not possess the word of God, they have a conscience that will either on that last day accuse them of wrongdoing or excuse them. Well, it begs the question by what is that conscience educated? Right, And Paul's answer is that conscience is educated because even the Gentiles have the work of the law written upon their hearts. Okay? Now, I want to make a clarification here. That can sometimes confuse people because one of the main promises of the New Covenant, right? you think of Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, one of the main promises of the New Covenant is that God is going to do what? He's going to write the... Law upon our what, our heart, and so sometimes people hear that and they think, okay, that seems a bit redundant. If Adam and Eve already had the law written on their heart, and you're saying so to all of us, seems like kind of a redundant promise for God to say that we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna write my law on your heart. Here's what's going on there. God is using similar language, but to communicate two different things. Okay, Um, context is important. When Paul is speaking in Romans 2 of the Gentiles who don't have the written word, but they still have the law of God written upon their hearts, he's saying that they have the standard of the law by nature, right? Um, That's why we can see even today in parts of the world where Christianity doesn't have influence, you can still see evidence of the natural law working itself out in societies. Um, Usually societies... Um, have, for instance, an idea of marriage. Even though not denying it can be uh, twisted by the, you know, sin clouds are, uh, are the clarity of the law of nature. But there still are generally laws regarding marriage. There's laws regarding theft, murder, um, You see this in men everywhere who, even though they worship false gods, clearly it's been put within us that we have a duty to worship our Creator, right? Um, So, um, let me see, where was I? So, the natural law, even though it's distorted because of sin, continues to show in uh, fallen humanity And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 2, that fallen man has the standard of the law written on his heart, right? Now, when Ezekiel and Jeremiah promise the writing of the law of God on the heart as a promise of the new covenant, they're not denying what Paul is saying. They're talking about something different. When they emphasize that the law will be written on the heart of God's people, they're saying that in contrast to the old covenant where the law was written Where? two tablets of stone, right? And Paul makes that um, connection in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, where Paul says, you guys are my epistle, right? Um, you Corinthians. Um, the law, the administration of condemnation had the law written externally on two tablets of stone, but now you guys are the epistle of God, right? You're the proof of God's um, truth in the Gospel, basically. Um, And so, that's what the New Covenant is promising, is um, the reality that in addition to the external law of God, which God gave to Israel, in the New Covenant, God is saying, hey Israel, I know that you couldn't keep that law, because I didn't give you the power to keep it. I'm going to take that external law, and I'm going to write it on your hearts with power. And obviously, that's intimately connected to the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, but that's what the New Covenant is getting at when it says the law will be written on our heart. It's not just an issue of information. It's an issue of new power to keep the law so that we can obey it from the heart, unlike Israel. Okay? So just, just a cl- clarification there. Um, similar language, but describing two different things. So Adam and Eve had this um, law written on their hearts. They had knowledge of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And then the confession says, and they had power to fulfill it. Okay? So, Adam and Eve not only had the guidance of the natural law, but they had the ability to fulfill it. So, it wasn't like God created them and then told them to do something that was outside of their ability to do. Um, th- this is often, if you read um, theology, this is often referred to Adam and Eve's ability they were, um, they were able not to sin. Was it Augustine who wrote uh, all, the, all the Latin, you know, uh, passe non pecare, non passe non pecare? Yeah. So if you want uh, you know, something fun to memorize and impress all your friends, read, I think it was Augustine. Um, but Adam and Eve, unlike us, in a state of sin, um, they had the ability not to sin. In other words, they had the ability to obey. They had power to fulfill what God told them to do. Um, And I I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were in John um, the difference between moral and natural inability. And I emphasized that sinners born in a state of sin, we cannot please God. We cannot come to Christ on our own because we love sin, right? We're enslaved to darkness. We need to realize when we're talking about Adam and Eve, we're talking about a state that we have never known and never could even imagine. They had not fallen. Their natures were not fallen. They were created upright in true righteousness and holiness. And so, they could obey God and please God. And yet, the confession says, they were under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will. Um, now I mentioned Augustine and Boston Boston with his book on the fourfold uh, human nature in its fourfold state Um, I want to just explain this if you've been around Bethany you've heard me explain this in different contexts probably before but it's good to just have it clearly set out before us I mentioned that our confession will mention at different points in the confession all four states of man's nature here we're looking at the state of innocency Um, In chapter 9 on free will, we'll look at um, basically how the will changes throughout all four of these states. Um, But when you think about human nature, it's not that we have more than one human nature. It's that human nature is undergoing changes as it moves from different state to different state, right? Um, So before the fall, Adam and Eve had the ability not to sin, They were able to obey. Yet, they were mutable. They were changeable. They could fall from that. Obviously, they did. Um, After the fall, we have the second state in which human nature finds itself. And it became impossible for man to not sin. Right? So, man went from in the garden able to not sin to then going in a state of sin, he's unable to do anything but sin. Then, as God brings a sinner into a, a state of grace by saving him, he now again has the ability not to sin, right? And that's important for us. We need to realize that as Christians, we're not the same as we were when we were not Christians, right? When we were not Christians, we were enslaved. Sin had dominion over us. Everything we did was sin. That's not true of the Christian. The Christian is not perfected yet, but nonetheless, to deny that we're able to now obey God sincerely from the heart is to deny God's, the work of God's grace in our lives. So that's the third state. Man is restored to a place where it is again possible not to sin. But the greatest state that we all look forward to is the state of glory. The fourth state in which it will become impossible to sin. Right? Right? Yeah, hallelujah, yeah. So, we go from can obey, to cannot obey, to can obey again, and then in heaven, will obey, must obey, cannot disobey, right? Those are the four states that human nature passes through. And that's good news, right, that the, the end is actually better than the state that Adam and Eve were in, because when God secures us in a state of glorification... And our wills are no longer mutable like Adam and Eve's were. Guess what? We're safe. There's no chance that five minutes into heaven I'm going to sin again and this whole thing just starts again, starts over again, right? Christ will fix us, glorify our wills, so that falling again is an impossibility. Um. So that's what's kind of being described here in the last uh, section of chapter, uh, paragraph two. Is that man was given the natural law, he had the ability to fulfill it, but he was also mutable, um, able to transgress because of the liberty of his own will. So let's turn now to paragraph three briefly, and then uh, we'll close. I've just got a couple applications, and we can discuss and, and take questions if we have any. Paragraph three says, Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now, something very interesting in, um, in paragraph 3 here is that I've mentioned this before. The, the 1689 is basically a, um, I don't know, what do you call it? It grabs from the Westminster and it grabs from the Savoy Declaration, right? Savoy was the Congregationalists, Westminster was the Presbyterians. Almost everything in the 1689 can be found verbatim in one of those two confessions. And that's on purpose, and I won't go into that. Um, what's interesting here in paragraph three is that the Baptists don't change any of the wording, except for two very small, they don't change any, any meaning, um, It doesn't change the wording, but what's interesting is that if you read this paragraph in Westminster, all of that, all that we're seeing here in paragraph three, that was all just tagged on to the end of paragraph two. And so for some reason, the Baptists wanted to break up Westminster paragraph two and make it into paragraph two and three. Does that make sense? And I think uh, Jim Renahan, I think, has made a persuading argument for why that was. And I think the reason for that is because paragraph 3 here makes the clear distinction between natural law, on the one hand, and positive law, on the other hand. And that distinction, natural and positive law, was very central to the Baptist argument for credo-baptism, uh, believer's baptism. And so I think it is a plausible argument that they just, from the beginning, wanted to make their principles clear. Um, that they differentiate between these two forms of law, natural law and positive law, because it's going to become very important towards the end of the the 1689 when they make their argument for credo-baptism. Now, what is positive law? Again, I've talked about this. If you've been around, you've heard it. You might have already forgot, so we'll go over it again. Positive law, it means what it sounds like. When we think of positive, it's something uh, above. Positive law is an added commandment that God gives to us by way of revelation. Okay, now it differs from the natural law or the moral law in this sense. We would have no knowledge of our duty to a certain positive law apart from direct revelation of God telling us. Okay, so for instance, Adam and even the garden they would have known by nature it's wrong you know, to commit adultery, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to lie, but they wouldn't have known the tree in the middle of the garden's off limits for you, except that God come and in addition to the natural law, give them that positive law. Right? Um, so, positive laws... Um, how do I say it? Um... I think I've already summarized that. Let me see where I am. Um, this, okay, I'll pick up here. This was a common distinction between, amongst both Presbyterians and Baptists. Okay? So it's not like the Baptists came up with this new idea of positive and moral law or natural law, whereas the Presbyterians never had that. This was just common ground. Everyone accepted this distinction. So here's a, here's a Presbyterian describing positive law. Um, John Barrett is his name. He says, positive laws are... Or, or I'll kind of update the English because it's somewhat difficult. He says, positive laws have to do with things neither good nor bad in and of themselves, but things of a middle nature, right? So positive laws have to do with things that are not intrinsically bad or intrinsically good, but things of an indifferent nature, And then he says which yet become good when they are commanded of God or become evil when forbidden by God. He says the goodness of God would never command anything evil in itself and what the Lord commands though indifferent before yet being commanded it becomes a necessary duty and what he forbids though it was lawful enough before yet being under divine prohibition it becomes sinful. So does that make some sense? That, for instance, um, circumcision, right? Moses and you know the father Abraham down to Moses, to, apart from special revelation, they never would have known that God desires them to circumcise their sons on the eighth day, right? But the moment God commands that, that becomes a good thing for Israel to obey. becomes a necessary thing for Israel to obey, right? But because it has to do with a thing indifferent, God is free to abrogate that same command when the new covenant comes and takes the place of the old covenant, right? And that's the thing about positive laws is that they come and go, right? Food laws are positive laws that came and they went. Um, even the Sabbath has an element of positive law to it in terms of the day. It used to be Saturday. That was commanded of Israel. And then Christ comes, rises from the grave on the first day of the week and the day changes, right? So that, that's the difference between um, natural and positive law. But the point here is that this distinction becomes key when we come to understanding that one prohibition that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, this Apart from this command, um, if God had not given it to Adam and Eve, they would have been free to eat of all the trees. But because God came and He gave them this additional command, this tree now becomes off limits. And in addition to the law written on their hearts, they now are told to not do this one thing. And why? It's because God was testing their love and their trust of God by this one prohibition. Adam and Eve, everything else in the garden is yours. Just this one thing is off limits. And the confession says here what the result would have been as long as they obeyed. It says, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and they had dominion over the creatures. As long as Adam had obeyed this commandment, they would have enjoyed the greatest of blessings, communion with God. Which is another way of saying basically the essence of heaven, right? Um, If you read chapter 32, paragraph 2 in the confession, the words are very relevant and and, uh, parallel to these words here in chapter 4 when it speaks of the blessedness of the redeemed at the last judgment. And it says, on the last day, then the righteous shall go into everlasting life. And receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. And so, as long as Adam and Eve obeyed this command, this happiness belonged to them. And it even says that uh, as long as they obeyed, they would also maintain their place of dominion over the creatures. And that's simply a way of saying that they would keep their first estate. Right? The first arrangement that God had made with Adam and Eve in which it was full of blessing and goodness, God is saying as long as you keep this command, these things will all remain yours. You will be take dominion over the, over the creatures and you will be my, my vice regents on the earth. Sadly, of course, we know this state was lost. Adam and Eve did rebel. And we will pick up on that um, in chapter six, when we describe uh, talk about the fall and the effects of of the fall, but let me let me just close with two applications, uh, and I'll I'll be brief here. Um, two things. There were many that we could bring away. I, I have two. Both of them have to do with the idea of natural law or the law of nature. Um, what this means is that every single human being who's ever been created in the image of God, has the law of God or the work of the law of God written upon their heart. And why that's significant is it means that we have a common ground with every single unbeliever in our evangelism. Right? And what, what I mean by this is, what do you do, and I'm sure many of us have experienced this, What do you do when you're trying to witness to someone and you're trying to get them to feel the, you know, the terrors of the law and, you know, hey, what you're doing is sin and all this. What do you do, (coughs) excuse me, when someone just says, you know what, I don't feel bad for not worshiping God and uh, I don't think that what you call sin is sin, like it doesn't feel wrong to me. Um, You know, you, you Christians have your standard of right and wrong, I have mine and I'm pretty at peace with what I'm doing. They just want to turn it into a subjectivism. What what do you do? Well, number one, what you do is you can't believe them. You need to believe God's Word. That unbelievers, though they can try to suppress and explain away any objective God-given standard, they cannot erase the law of God from their hearts. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that the Gentiles have consciences which will either excuse them or accuse them, which means that conscience is still working to a degree. Right? Not denying that sinners can sear their conscience, um, they can uh, you know, harden, harden their hearts and things like that, but this is true of every image bearer. Even if they won't admit it, which oftentimes they won't because they know if they do, that opens up a whole nother conversation with you. But even if they won't admit it, we as Christians, we gently press upon them what we know they already know, even though they won't admit they know it. And we, it's like testimony. We know that inside they've got a testifier that's saying, this is God's truth, this is God's law. Now they're saying, you know, be quiet, be quiet. What we come along is we reinforce that with the word of the written Word of God, because we know we've got an ally in there, even though they want to say, no, there's nothing in there, <laughs> you know, everything in there is on my side. And we're trying to grab that ally, so to speak, by reinforcing with the written Word of God what we know they already know is true in their hearts. And so... You know, don't be discouraged when you deal with someone like that who just wants to lie through their teeth and, nah, nah. I've never feel bad. I've never cried, never felt guilt. You know, look, they can say that all they want. We know what the truth is. Um, And honestly, it's an opportunity for us just to plead with them to stop playing hide-and-seek with God. God knows you. God knows your heart. You know that God knows your heart. Admit the gospel's true. Admit that there's a God with whom you have to do and come to Christ. Start walking in the light. How much better is it to walk in the light of truth and let God search us in his mercy than try to hide in the shadows and pretend like we can evade the the one who knows all things. So that's that's the first thing, is that we have an ally. The natural law is written in the heart of every every human being, and we we can use that as an ally in evangelism. Second thing, and I'll be brief here, is that when we come, and I, I can't open up all of this, but I do just want to say, when we consider natural law or the law of nature, this is the law by which the the, uh, the common kingdom ought to be governed. And when I say common kingdom, I'm using, I'm picking up on that language that's been used by the church throughout the ages. If you have, um, I'm not going to be able to think of the term. What's the redemptive kingdom? I'll just use that, never mind, don't get, I'll use that term. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about the realm of the redeemed, right? That's where the Holy Spirit dwells, that is the kingdom of God. But then, outside of that, we also have villages, we have cities, we have cities, did I say cities? We have states, we have countries, which are composed of a mixture of Christians and non-Christians, right? And so... The question is, what laws would please God um, that ought to govern such societies? And there's two main ditches that Christians need to avoid. Um, On the one hand, we would certainly, I hope, never want to say that none of God's law applies to society. Only the church should care about God's law, right? That doesn't do justice to God as creator, Right? He's not just Redeemer, He's Creator. He governs the world, and He holds the world accountable. Um, and we, we ought never to act like God, um, you know, God doesn't care what societies do. He doesn't care about what laws... He has no preference of what laws should or shouldn't govern a society. No. Paul says in Romans 13, that great section on the civil magistrate, he tells us that the civil magistrate is God's servant... His deacon, and that the civil magistrate's job is to reward good and punish what is evil. Okay, now, here's a question Who gets to determine what is good and what is evil? It certainly isn't the civil magistrate, right? That standard of goodness and evil by which the civil magistrate is to either reward or punish. Is determined by who? God, of course. Otherwise, you do just devolve into autonomy and, you know, God has no, no say here, right? No power here. No, God has authority over this whole earth because He made this whole earth and He will judge the whole earth. Um, and so, it's important for us to, re- to realize that when we talk about the natural law, the moral law, at least the second table, which has to do with our duty towards neighbor. um, These are the things that ought to govern society. And it should grieve us when we see the commands of God, as revealed in the Ten Commandments, specifically the the second table. It should grieve us when we see those just utterly turned on their heads. Um, When we see things like murder um, enshrined in law, uh, when we see things like dishonesty enshrined in law, those things should grieve Christians. we shouldn't be indifferent to that. We should long for a society it's not going to be a Christian society, but we should still long for a society where god's commandments are honored at least in the external sense, where theft is punished, murder is punished, on and on um, and so that that informs us i mean if you if anyone in this room ever finds themselves you know running for um, local government or, you know, some higher than that government. I hope you already have thought of through this question before you get to that point, but well, what should I be enforcing? What should I be wanting to see happen? Well, the second table of the law is a great guide for you. We should long to see a society for the good of man and for the glory of God where authorities are honored, marriage is honored, um... Private property is honored. I'm trying to think of different applications. But you get what I mean. That, that's not the same as saying that that's our ultimate hope and if we create a society like that, everyone's going to be Christian. That's a whole different thing. I'm not talking about that. It's not our ultimate hope. But it's not. All, it's also not something God is indifferent to. So anyway, natural law should at least um, govern, If ideally it should govern um, the... Uh, the common kingdom in that realm. So I'm getting tired at this point, and I'm not able to think of my words quickly, so I'll stop there, because that's also the end of my notes conveniently. So, any questions or comments on any of that? I don't know if we or if I need to get this mic. oh, you've got one, Ken. Oh, here. You want this one? There. Hopefully it comes on.
1: to paragraph 5 which then speaks about those laws having passed away but the moral law yeah. continuing and being binding yes um, so it's just another way in which our confession speaks uh, about the difference between positive law and the moral law that is given uh, even the sundry laws uh, given to men are given to Israel in the time uh, for that purpose uh, yeah. So that's kind of a helpful place to see that as well yeah um, and then uh, I think it's ve- I think it's very helpful because sometimes we Particularly now, for whatever reason, there are are other ideologies that deal with God's law and the relevance of it, or maybe just the obligatory um, observance of God's law for reasons other than to point us to Christ. But there are are two ditches that seem to always be in the way of the Christian, and you mentioned them. uh, And I think it's important for us to realize that God is not indifferent uh, to righteousness. He is not indifferent to uh, to his standard of of good and, and what is good. And and as we look to uh, participate in the common kingdom, being both citizens of heaven and the citizen here, we want to not only obey the laws that God has given to us um, through our legislator, but also our legislative, but also to know that those who are outside of the redemptive kingdom, uh, as you said, there is a a testifier within them. There's also external laws that bind them to obedience as well. we're not above the law because we're Christians. We are, we're not above civil law because we're we are Christians, but rather we are the most obedient of citizens within the common kingdom because we know the one who has made the law. Yeah. We know the one who has given us the law. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think it's important for us to, to not draw a distinction where there doesn't need to be, but also to see the difference between what God has intended for his spiritual kingdom as well as his physical kingdom. Yeah. And he does rule over all. Yeah.